0: Yeah, this is different this is different jesse it's got lyrics it's the first one with lyrics yeah quiet i'm trying to listen oh sorry Sorry. all right you get the idea welcome to the graffito podcast i am fired up my name is drew and i'm your host and i just finished my diet dr pepper (laughs) So I'm so fully caffeinated and ready to go on this. I had two cups of coffee today for the first time. I can tell the second I came into the office, you were like, hey man, hey, 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 what's going on? What's going on? With me 20 feet to my right is Jesse, who you should all know by now. And 20 feet to my left is a special guest that I will reveal right after I tell you that this free stock song is by The Wrong Sister, and it's called Looking at the Sun. Pretty good. Yeah, and the oh, wrong, wait, the wrong sister is name the, the name of the band. band. It's the song, is called Looking at the Sun, which happens to be off their album, Taking Care to Be Nice. So, have, 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 Tommy, have you heard of these guys? No. Oh, you just totally blew the whole oh, thing. Oh, shoot. Man, I don't know how many times we can go through this. What do you mean you would barely go through this stuff with me? You just put me in front of a mic and we go. Well, now we know who this mystery person is that I mentioned. It's the very talented and handsome Tom Schlesinger Guidelli, owner of Alcove in Boston's West End. Now that you've officially engaged him, we might as well officially welcome him into the office. I know, I couldn't help it. I'm also curious why he's
1: here,
2: but I I just couldn't (laughs) help it. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Well, you are asking why Tom's here. I'm going to tell you. We invited him for this very rare occasion. When you, we you invited him? Well, I invited him <laughs> to this very rare occasion when we do these introductions because frankly, Jesse, Tommy has a bone to pick with you. In the episode we did with Shore Gregory a few weeks ago, Tom, your name came up a few times as you know, and I'm still, I've been asked by multiple people if I really have your face tattooed on my back.
2: I still haven't seen it.
0: <laughs> well, I was gonna ask you to confirm that you posed for the tattoo artist while they applied it, but I guess, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you don't remember that maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I during this a glass of wine <laughs> in
2: your hand. Yeah, I
0: can't wait to relive that part of that, pod, of that episode. <laughs> that was clearly the best part. I love when people bring up the stuff that really you just kind of blow by and think it's not a big deal. I'm like, what about all the other great content? No, no, we remember the tattoo. Um, also during that episode, Jesse made some statements or comments, uh, that frankly, it seems like you didn't agree with because you started texting me and I said, listen, why don't you stop? Come on in and let's confront this guy face to face sort of on our little podcast. Right? Yeah. That's why Tommy's here. Jesse. Now, you know, I like it. Okay, <laughs> Tom, what did he say that, that resonated that, that you sort of objected?
2: Well, so in the last you know ten or fifteen minutes of the episode, um, you start to talk about indoor dining specifically and and what are the sort of saving graces that are going to occur within restaurants over over the winter and Shore laid out a very clear argument for three different paths. I would argue that there's a slight amendment to his path. I think you know if you're lucky enough to be on private property, maybe there is some. You know, vague trip to Aspen you could be making in Boston and staying outside. Um, but it goes on to talk about um, staffing and economy and takeout as a more viable option. Um, I remember this. I remember yeah. this too.
0: Yeah, what did okay. you say, Jesse? I think I said,
1: and I'll stand by it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I was saying, Shor was talking about the last path he was talking about indoor dining, right? And I said, I think I said, I kind of hope we don't get there. And I think it came up because, Drew, you'd mentioned that Tom had said people, people came around, right, to outdoor dining? Eventually people yes. came okay, around, it's coming yeah. back to me. Um, and, I, and I expressed my concern that I hope people don't come around to indoor dining because I don't think that's a good thing for us as a community from a public health perspective.
2: Did I say that? You did. And that's not the part I disagree with. Okay, yeah. okay. let's just I get, think it. That's let's really, get it right from Tom. I Kong. think that's an important piece of, of the puzzle. And I think, you know, Shore went on to comment that um, it's, it's important that we remind the public that what we do and what we have always done has involved health safety. Yes. Um, and that truthfully outside of the medical industry, there is probably no industry greater prepared to deal with public health safety in this way out uh, beyond the restaurant industry the only difference that occurs for us on a minute-to-minute basis in how we perform in the re- restaurants as a result of this is wearing a mask. Yeah, We should be washing our hands. We should have been washing our hands before. We should be sanitizing stations. We should have been doing that before. Silverware is required by health code to go through a dishwasher at a certain temperature twice because that's the item that hits your mouth. Like, All of those are important and impactful pieces of how we run our businesses on a daily basis.
1: Which, by the way, like... I get, I have no issue from a safety perspective because I know the responsible operators are all over this way better than any other environment we're in, maybe other than a hospital. But I would argue that restaurants, to me, if it was up, if it was just about the staff, okay, I'm concerned about the other customers. I actually think it drives me nuts um, when I think about the experience of a server going over to a table and the customers don't put their masks on. So I'm Mm. more concerned about customer behavior. I have no issue with restaurant staff behavior.
2: Yeah. And I think that's where you're really missing a big piece of it. I don't disagree with the need for appropriate expectations to be set in terms of staff behavior. Yeah. Again, that was the case before kicking a drunk person out of a bar that's being belligerent. You know, there was always a, there's always a pact in that. Right, customer behavior. Correct. Yeah, yeah. But I think you're really missing the humanity of the individual servers in the argument you were making. Um, and a big piece of the argument you were making was about, well, if we can responsibly do this through takeout and, oh, well, if we lose a couple of server jobs, that's not the biggest deal. And for me, that was probably p- insensitive. Well, I just think it also lacks perspective on reality. The takeout business, people are not spending the same amount of money on takeout. Yep. You know, they're just not, they're not spending the same amount of money on cocktails and alcohol and takeout, right? So when you're looking at the economy of what this is from a restaurant perspective, there is no possibility that takeout is, unless you're talking about a true, you're talking about a sweet green model or yeah, yeah. a mom and pop pizza shop, there is no way that the, the employees of the restaurant industry um, are going to be sustained through a takeout only model. And for me, as you know, I'm a gay male operator, I'm a, very, I'm a fairly young operator in the city with one property. Um, Pre-COVID, we had 65 employees. We've been able to bring back about 50 people. Um, we stayed open for takeout and delivery the whole time. So I know what the percentage is on what we were doing at what I believe will be a very heightened version of what takeout and delivery will be with, you know, because not everybody is going to shut down unless the government shuts us down again, yep. right? Uh, I was able to have five employees for takeout and delivery instead of the 45 that we have, 50 now, right? We employ 90%, um, you know, people of color, uh, gay and lesbian staff members and female staff members. So for me, we're talking about communities of, you know, communities that need jobs that need to be serviced and and offered opportunities to succeed. And I think that the perspective brought to the table in the previous discussion sort of ignored um, what the needs of the restaurateurs are, but more importantly, what the needs of the staff are. And I think Shore did a great job of saying the needs of the staff are still important, but for me, it it needed to be highlighted even more.
0: I think that's super fair. I've I've never been more proud to have a tattoo on my body right now. (laughs) Um, But he he brings up a great point, and, and I remember when you said it, basically you your comment was the takeout will be so much that they can still employ a lot of people to run the operations of this takeout business well that is, was probably a naive comment by me there.
1: and you
2: also brought up the, the point of better spacing which i think is a really important mm-hmm. and impactful point because of the five people that we were able to bring back on all five of them were in the kitchen yeah, yeah. you know so yeah so even if you're in and you're relying so heavily on on um revenue from food, that the spacing has to occur within the confines of a a space that is certified to service people from a health safety standpoint.
1: Well, let me dig in even further and let's see if this resonates. Um, So the human cost and the human suffering of all this, particularly to those folks that are already most vulnerable, that are underemployed, that aren't paid enough money, um, that is real right? It's an absolute crisis. And we're acutely aware of that. I recognize, I guess my fear, one fear and one um, question for you. One fear is that I think we're all going to be in a way worse place when we have to shut down again, when this current, um, we'll call it like, we're just kind of going along, people are surviving. I think when the health crisis ramps up more in the coming months, I think the worst case scenario is full shutdown, right? And I think one of the reasons that I makes me really nervous indoor dining is I think that's a sign and I think that will lead to more the, the spread of disease in a way that actually just hurts the, hurts the industry even more than if we, were, we closed indoors. So that's one. The other one is, and, and this is where I think I may be wildly naive, I would much rather, I would much rather as a community, as a restaurant community, as, as a diner, I'd be more comfortable if you were really encouraging takeout actively, um, and tipping. And, and I know people aren't going to order as many drinks, right? Like I get the, the revenue impact, but when I look at the shifts that, different business that Target and Walmart and some of these other bigger retailers are making where they're actually bringing way more people back for curbside and they're finding ways of reallocating funds to employees. I think if we made more of an emphasis on the importance of going and taking out versus dining in, maybe that mitigates it a little bit, but I recognize you're not going to employ 60 people like you did pre-pandemic.
2: So I'm the wrong person to have that portion of the argument with because we have set up a marketplace right we have continually put up takeout on rainy nights like we're we're talking on a Friday night Friday afternoon right now it started to rain on my way over here and I literally walked in the door and I was like, well, there's the weekend right you know like so we'll put up a post today that says don't forget about takeout from alcove you the know people aren't doing it they're doing it to some extent yeah we're creating a wine of the month club like we're doing we're trying to create catering for the holidays. Like we are trying to do everything possible. And I, I don't disagree with you about the concern of a, of a shutdown occurring again. And I'm, you know, nobody, I, I care very much about the public health crisis that we're in the midst of. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't think without, um, first of all, the public health crisis has gone on for far too long because of a lack of um, of agreement across a broader set of um, public health standards. Right.
0: This is not a restaurant issue.
2: A, this is not a restaurant issue. And B, it's, you know, it takes every, this is a, it's a classic tragedy of the commons, ultimately. You know, we have to be the safest and smartest participant in the subject matter. And I have, you know, 45 people that I care a tremendous amount about, and that's a huge part of my family. And I need to protect them. Yeah. You know, and our neighborhood has stepped up so much charlestown has stepped up so much and when you say stepped up that means them
1: coming and dining at the restaurant
2: i, I think it means a lot of different things yeah. i mean certainly when we were in shutdown and we were doing i mean we've closed for uh, we're, we're <laughs> i think i told you this i haven't told anybody this yet but we're gonna close for our third day ever we've closed for thanksgiving the first year because we needed a break we closed the first day of of um Dining being allowed again in the city because we didn't, we weren't able to order food by the time Governor Baker had announced that we could open again and we needed a day to get the kitchen up and running. And we're going to close on November 3rd so that the staff has the opportunity to vote because I strongly believe it should be a national holiday. Yep. Um, So You know, for me, it's like, we, we have a responsibility to take care of these people and that, and that's so much a part of it. And our neighborhood has recognized that has stepped up and that has been through takeout during shutdown. It has been through an encouragement of the marketplace. It has been through dining outdoors and dining indoors. It has been through taking cocktails to go. It has been through, you know, everything that you could hope for. And that I'm so incredibly thankful for and proud of, but, um, it shows you how large of the community you need to sustain 45 jobs.
0: And I, I just want to point out also, it seems like those pivots you're making are to fill a gap of all the business you've already lost because of what's going on.
2: Yeah. I mean, I sat my managers down eight weeks ago and I said, look, I said, this is a very hard conversation to have. You never want your boss to come to you and say, you will not have a job if, right? And every other time in my career that I've had to say that to somebody, it has become been because of, um, you know, a lack of performance, right? And I turned to them and I said, you have an opportunity to affect a business in a way in which you have never had before. I said, create your own mini business under the brand of Alcobe, take it over, be a champion of it and drive some revenue, right? And if you drive a component piece of the revenue, we are going to be able to employ you Mm -hmm. as well as the rest of our team to a much greater extent. Um, And that's why we have these different concepts that we're working on.
1: I mean, I think just listening to Tom is a further validation of what restaurants mean to our neighborhoods, to our cities. Um, I wish there are many restaurateurs, particularly in Boston, that are as thoughtful and think about it this way. But, you know, this is complicated and and I will acknowledge the insensitivity um, and I will also acknowledge... The reality that we've always known here at Graffito, and I've always known, um, despite the fact of my closest family and friends owning and operating restaurants, that you just don't get it till you do it. It's just really different. <laughs>
2: Isn't that the truth?
1: Yeah, totally. And like it, this is this is what makes this podcast powerful, Drew. To me, this this ability that we have to share this perspective, and it's how we learn as a team. And I think it allows hopefully our
0: listeners to learn and. Um, I'll be a little more thoughtful. I, I just picture that scene in airplane when people <laughs> keep coming up and slapping the passenger. If Jesse said something bad, please feel free to come in and set us straight. Well, it wasn't or bad. Or email us and write us and yeah. let us know. It wasn't bad. Was it, I think it was just like Tommy said. It it just wasn't complete in a way, in the way he was thinking, but. I, for one, am glad that that's settled. <laughs> I don't know if it's settled, but I hope we can all still be friends because I love hanging out at Alcove. Yeah, of I work with we Jesse. I just work with Jesse. I want you to know that. <laughs> we
2: could still be friends. <laughs> okay, good.
0: Um, Jesse, we is that st- all? We're done? We're well, we on? still have to introduce the episode. All right. This was, this, um, and Tommy's really going to just hang out, I guess. We're chatting with today, we're chatting with Clover founder and CEO, Air Muir. And Jesse, you've known Air for a while, and I know you hold him in a really high regard. I was driving in
1: thinking about talking to Air on the podcast today and kind of how the trajectory of Graffito and Clover have kind of run these parallel paths. I met Air the second week of him operating his food truck in Kendall Square, which was in '08 or 09. Uh, he'll probably tell us on the podcast. I was I was cued to Clover because Catherine Malmberg, shout out to her, she's now in Minneapolis. She's actually working with us on this Minneapolis project that we're Uh, this development project we're working on with the North Pond guys. She said to me, she was in New York at the time, she said, hey, have you heard about this uh, food truck that just opened down the street from the watermark? You know, Dave and I at the time were in-house working for 20 Properties. Um, And I went and checked it out. And I, over time, got to know Air. You know, when I was still practicing law, I ended up doing um, real estate work for Clover. And then as my professional practice evolved and I focused on graffito, you know we've continued to work with Clover and they're one of the very few tenants where we do uh, work on Clover's behalf in uh, their real estate dealings so we've been on board for every now I think 12 or 13 restaurants with Clover and um, I think what we're gonna hear from AIR today or at least what I've heard from AIR over the last decade is a little snapshot into where the restaurant industry is going particularly fast casual because I think you know AIR Tom, I, I assume you know Air. We've met. Yeah. He um he Tom fell asleep. <laughs> I was just making sure he's still here paying attention. Um you know, Air has also a really interesting background, which we probably won't get into, which is, you know, MIT undergrad and grad, then he went to HBS. He was at Patagonia and then at McKinsey, or maybe at McKinsey and then Patagonia, and then he spent I think it was six months or a year working in Burger King and McDonald's before he started Clover. And he brings a really interesting perspective that, as we'll talk with him, is kind of grounded in data and communications with customers um, and, you know, a real thoughtfulness, which we heard from Tom today, in kind of the way in which um, Clover makes decisions and conduct itself as a corporate actor.
0: Great. Well, we'll get started on that. Tom, we promise to have you back for a longer conversation. Until then, we'll see you at Alcove. This is, by the way, the longest introduction ever. So uh, it was worth thanks it. For it. It was very worth it. And I'm glad you came in. So thank you. Andrew. I
1: would just say, I mean, we need to be, we need to continually be educated by the retail and the restaurant community. I mean, I think it's what makes us better translators in this world of trying to make urban, better urban places. So Tom, I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me. All right. Let's listen to our interview with Air. How many Clover locations exist right now?
3: We have 13 right now.
0: Is that the same as before COVID or have we yes. lost some to?
3: No, no, we haven't, um, we haven't shut any restaurants down. We have two that are not currently open. The one over in downtown crossing and the one in financial district, uh, they will open up in the next few weeks or so. We're just been trying to time that with people coming back to offices, but Um, So, no permanent closures, just temporary closures.
0: Are you getting a sense that there are more and more people? Is it building or? Eh,
3: Slowly. But
0: enough to open.
3: Yeah, those specific sites, um, it's going to be, you know, I'd say it's not not fully ripe. Like, it's going to be a little bit of a leap of faith to open the doors there. But I think we'll do all right. Um, There's definitely a lot more traffic than two months ago. I mean, if you walked around that area two months ago, it was just nothing, you know, and it's, it's, it's still not, it's still very quiet, but it's, it's better than it was.
0: As you evaluate real estate moving forward, especially in 2021, what are some of the most important elements when you consider looking for a new space for Clover?
3: Well, I, uh, you know, I think, um, it's, I I think it's a tricky calculation we haven't really figured out. Yeah, you know, on one hand, uh, we're eager to continue to expand, and brick and mortar historically has been a wonderful way to um, cement yourself in people's lives. Uh, I mean, even now, as we look at some of our newer activities, we're doing a meal box program and some other things. We can track the addresses we're shipping to, and they, they track pretty closely to where we have presence, obviously. And if you talk to somebody from Wellesley, they may not even know what Clover is. If I walk around in Cambridge, I'm like a minor celebrity and people stop me, you know, on the sidewalk. So it's just, it, that's this is because we have a clover, we have a bunch of clovers in Cambridge and we don't have anything out in Wellesley. So I think that we, we've relied on brick, brick and mortar and I think we, and we know we want to expand in the future. That all said, the equation um, for opening a brick and mortar store had been getting worse and worse and worse over the last decade, I would say. And then all of a sudden now it's just bottomed out. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do it. So, and, and then the question is, what does it look like on the other side? I'm not sure. I mean, it it wasn't great. I'm not sure how it even looks a year from now or two years from now. Um, So we're very cautious about, um, about new sites, new physical sites, you know, right now as a business, I can invest, I can invest a million dollars in a new restaurant, which, may or may not get payback over seven years. I mean, that was a different calculation five years ago, but that's where we are right now. Or I can invest a million dollars in expanding my customer base for my meal box program, uh, which is going to give me payback in two months.
0: So it's a total shift in thinking for your business model.
3: Uh, I mean, yeah, it's just, I think that the basic economics for restaurants had gotten worse and worse. Our industry is a funny industry. I think in some ways, it's fragmented on both sides, but not really in the same way. On um, the tenant side, there's just no coordination, and it's completely fragmented. I think on the landlord side, there's a lot more um, lockstep movement, and so I think as a result, there's been a lag. You know, there's generally a lag in things changing. I think, I think, um, uh, and there are other factors and forces at work. But in any case, the that equation just doesn't look as good right now. So. I think as we're looking forward, I don't, I don't know what the answer is going to be. I and mean, we do value being near people. Um, we've relied on that historically. But do, am I eager to go sign off rents for one hundred and thirty dollars a square foot and you know spend a million dollars to build restaurants right now? I, I, it's very hard to say yes to that.
0: Well, have you considered a different type of space? Not necessarily the, the traditional retail that you've been looking at, but something that's more grab and go or.
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I think we'll have to see how things evolve. Um, You know, I mean, uh, just sort of shining a light on the economics and why I say that equation doesn't work. You know, we, we go into a year ago, we were negotiating a deal where we would only make money on the site. If we were just pushing it to the very, very boundaries, it had to be packed to its maximum, it, there's just no margin in it, right? And if we did all those things, we succeed, and and we have been doing. That. I mean, we we open a restaurant and we push it to the limit, and it succeeds at the limit, and we do it again. And we're not the only ones, you know. Sweet green dig in. Others that are pushing prices up are doing the same thing. Um, but if you look at it with different eyes, and it's you know, it's it's softer. Like, can you go in and say? You have to space all your seats out, and you have sixty percent fewer seats, but you've got the same size space. Uh, can you make it work? Not, I mean, not at all. Not for me. Not for. Anybody. So, are you
0: slowing down, thinking about the future, then?
3: Uh, well, I think we're just we're just thinking about it all a little bit differently. Um, a lot of this is a lot of this is like an uh, a, maybe a gap in perspective. I mean, it feels really obvious to me and other operators I talk to. Uh, when we look at this, I mean, it just seems we we are all on the same page. none of us are confused about it, but then, when I talk to landlords, they don't seem to see it this way at all. so I think this there's this giant chasm
0: yeah Jesse I mean is that that's sort of what we're hearing, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, we are hearing that
1: without exception, and I think the other thing for our listeners um to understand is that this the equation not working is not something. I'm going to put words in Eric's mouth because he said
0: it to me way pre-pandemic. <laughs> Did he, he say co- this is off the record? <laughs> <laughs> Are we recording? <laughs> no. Oh, uh, shit. I haven't hit start. Um, Hang on. <laughs> the, the
1: equation not working is not a COVID-19 related phenomenon. The equation not working, we've been building towards it to Eric's point. And the equation that is broken... Um, I think it's fair to say it is broken today. It was getting there, you know, in 2019. And I think when we spoke with air about Clover's real estate strategy, it was, there were a lot of hard no's because the model didn't work. It didn't work for Clover and it probably didn't work for any restaurant, but restaurants were still signing those deals.
3: Yeah. There's been, uh, you know, just tracing this all back further, like the broader arc of it. Um, the, mod, the, um, the big shift that's happened in, in eating in the past 15, 20 years, probably outside of anything else, is the move toward fast casual. I mean, people have been trading out fine dining meals down to casual. They've been trading casual down to um, fast casual. They've been trading fast food up to fast casual. So the winner's been fast casual. And, um, you know, we were led by Panera and Chipotle into that world. And then you have the more modern concepts like uh, sweet green, for example, which started a couple years before Clover. Uh, but that's the world we came into. And, um, and I think that was a new economic model in a lot of ways. And it's more profitable. If it's done well and is successful, it's a much more profitable restaurant model than fine dining or casual dining. Well, you have
0: volume for one.
3: Yeah. yeah, You can just
0: crank people in and out of these places.
3: Yeah. And then, and so, so I think that the success of those have, you know, changed the real estate landscape. I mean, if you look at what people are paying per square foot, I mean, I've lived through it. It's just, it's massive how it's changed. And, uh, but then at the same time, uh, the competition was getting heavier and heavier. Um, and other retailers were going out of business so that you're operating not next to a, an eyeglass shop or next to a, you know, a gym, but you're operating next to another fast casual and next to another fast casual. So um, those thing, that landscape has just shifted. So I think the success of fast casual in attracting diners has, you know, is largely responsible for the increase in real estate prices. And not just for restaurant real estate, for all of it, because I mean, every landlord knows restaurants are paying the top dollar right now. I mean, it used to be banks, it's restaurants now. And uh, and so restaurants have been pushing up that price of real estate across the board. To
1: be clear, it's the fast casual restaurants. Fast casual
3: restaurants, yeah. And and then also taxes have come along with that because the, the municipalities revalue taxation based on those rents. Um, and so altogether, the, we've just been marching sort of toward a more and more crowded, more and more uh, you know, competitive landscape, higher and higher underlying costs. And I think to the place where most um, most people have trouble making it really work over a five, seven, ten yeah. year period. And, and then on top of that, you have a lot of money that's come into the space, um, a lot of investment dollars. And then as soon as somebody raises $10 million, $15 million, they've got to spend it. And so you have this impetus driving people to sign leases that actually may not make sense, but Mm. for a shorter term, you know, purpose. Mm. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to see, I mean, we are seeing in real time, it's not only happening now, it's going to be happening over the next one or two years. The deals that air referenced where there was just a race to sign leases because there was some sort of funding event or capital occurrence that required additional units as folks in the industry say, um, we are seeing and we're going to see all the vulnerabilities to those actions. And, you know, it's one of the things that uh, is going to drive, I believe, and I think, Ari, you would agree, is going to drive the price per square foot for retail real estate down. And I think that's one of the things that many landlords aren't willing to say yet. But the pricing of retail real estate is going to come down in 2021 and everyone's trying to hold it right now. Everyone's not really, no one's really talking about it, but it is impossible for me to imagine that retail real estate uh, valuation and pricing doesn't come down coming out of this.
3: Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I mean, well, I'm, I'm hoping, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which might be different than a lot of listeners to this, but I mean, that's, that's what I think should happen. But that said, I'm joking aside everybody should be working together towards something sustainable. I mean, I don't think it makes sense um, for anybody to really be you know, voting for something that's going to fall apart in, in the near future, you know? So um, I hope that I hope that everybody can move together to a new place and bringing this around to so what does it mean for us? What are we looking for? What's the future for Clover's real estate? Uh, we have a viable model, it even works. I mean, I, I, I hate to say this because it, these are such painful times for everybody, but it even works at our current volumes. Like we are still able to hit break even on our stores. Uh, so if I can find stores that, you know, a, don't cost me a lot to build, B, um, have a reasonable rent arrangement that tracks with the what I'm actually producing in sales. Um, I'd love to open a whole bunch of stores next year. The question is, can I find those spots, you know? Um, but if, if we do find those spots uh, where the equation works, um, we're all for it. You know, it's, I, it's not that we can't make money serving people. We can't make money serving people and paying for a lot of square feet. And, and it's just not
0: getting used, yeah. especially now.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I don't think it's, I think what Air is really being too modest about, and I've been quiet today because I just love listening to Air talk and I learn a lot, um, it's probably,
3: this is like a subtle message. I should shorten my answers. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say it. but I'm gonna <laughs>
1: um, No, but I think what you're oftentimes too modest about uh, is the sense of purpose behind Clover. But I would actually just, given who our listeners are, even talk about Clover's sense of purpose and the way in which they've made real estate decisions. You know, Aaron and I have talked about, I would assume it's not only every restaurant Clover's open, but even the 5X multiple on the restaurants that Clover hasn't opened because the deals didn't work. But in conversations with AIR, it's always about, it's very deliberate. You know, why are we opening here? Why does it make sense? Why does it make sense based on the data we've collected, what we're hearing from customers, what we're seeing? And also, why does it make sense given where we think the industry's going and given where we think these neighborhoods are going and given where Clover's going? And I think it's just a really refreshing thing for Graffito and I think hopefully it's a refreshing thing for our listeners to hear that Clover has been highly strategic in almost everything they've done. That includes technology. It certainly includes real estate. And it's one of the reasons, as I kind of come back to where I started, that um, I just really like listening to air talk about all this stuff.
3: We're, we're, you know, you, you touch on something with data that's really interesting. In the early days of Clover the food trucks were at first a way to test the menu, but then really quickly they became a way to test real estate. And I don't think most people outside of uh, our company really know that that was our strategy early on, but we, we expanded the fleet to eight different trucks. We parked them in different areas. We would pick sites just because we were curious about potentially citing a restaurant. And today, every single one of our restaurants is at a site that we tested with trucks. Um, and, uh, and it, it was wonderful because we were able to collect data about the actual dynamics of a, of a site without, before committing to a restaurant. And there were a bunch of sites, you know, Jesse knows this, so we didn't like, we, we thought we would, you know, um, and then after testing, we said, Ooh, you know, let's avoid that. Um,
1: and by the way, I think I go back to so many of these, these negotiations, pre-lease, right. Part of the dance with these landlords and. When air would come in, and we'd have this conversation with these landlords, and basically able to say to them, "Here's why we really like this location. Here's why we believe we're going to be successful." It's not based on I think this neighborhood works because it's. We had a food truck down the street. Yeah,
0: it's proof of concept with a food truck for a
3: retail. It was really for powerful.
0: Restaurant. It was really really powerful.
3: Yeah, we we love doing that. And Now we're thinking along the lines of what's our 2020 version of that. Um, the trucks are hard because you don't have trucks reasons. anymore. Yeah, we basically for shut anything. them down yeah. we kept a couple for yeah. catering yeah. but um we kept the original one and we have one other but <laughs> uh but the food truck business you can't quite do today what we did in 2011 because there's all these restrictions on where you park you gotta all. have
0: permits to go yeah. everywhere yeah, and it's, they it's all like equal time too everybody needs a yeah. fair share where in every location and just to be clear prior to clover first food truck at dewey square in boston
1: Prior to Clover, there was no real food truck culture in the city of Boston other than, you know, MIT, you know, as a student, I know it inspired you, the food truck that was on Mass Ave. There were a couple food trucks in the city, but not even close to what it is today. And frankly, other than a couple hotspots on the West Coast, it's 10 years ago, It is it was not what it is today. There's no doubt.
3: Yeah, there was a moratorium on food trucks that had been imposed in the late 70s. And uh, so in Boston, there really were none. There was some ice cream trucks and there was m m ribs, which was like a trailer. But um, there was no food trucks. And that's why we opened at Dewey Square, like the weird little history of that. That was technically not considered city of Boston property. So we were able to open there without violating this moratorium, (laughs) which is sort of a crazy thought. That was...
1: 2009
3: was the first truck. 2008 was our first test over at MIT. So Dewey was I think 2010 maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When did you realize that these trucks could be a way for you to really scope out your next brick and mortar?
3: You know, I don't know, probably sometime after Dewey Square. Because we started thinking about where are we going to open a restaurant? And then naturally we thought, oh, well, we don't want to open it there or we do want to open it here. And then we started realizing maybe that's a nice strategy to actually use the trucks deliberately. So we started at that point signing them up for spots that we weren't sure we wanted as a food truck business per se, but we wanted to test. Cleveland Circle was one of them. Well, if you
1: remember, we actually, in the early days, I remember conversations where landlords who were coming after us we would say, hey, do you have a food truck location? Yep. Give us a month. Let's see if this works here. I mean, it was it was really interesting. I miss those days. That was yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, it
3: was fun. There was some freedom in that. So we fast forward to 2020. Uh, we're thinking of like the next version of that. And we realized a lot of our customers eat with us more than twice a week. And um, we even have a small group of customers that eat with us more than five times a week. <laughs> but the the bigger point is we just saw that, the food because the menu changes so often because it doesn't feel heavy after you eat it um, customers can eat it day after day after day in a way that you can't eat a burrito and uh um, we started playing with this idea of a subscription to the restaurants and we actually launched a sort of beta test of that about a year and a half or two years ago and we've been testing it with a cohort and now we're we're we actually just opened it up very quietly if it weren't for COVID, it would have been a bigger announcement probably but um right now you can use clover's ordering digital ordering there's a little tab on there and you can browse it and if you want you can sign up and subscribe to meals and if you do you're basically committing for a month to a certain number of meals per week in return we give you a giant discount
0: is this the meal box
3: Separate from the meal box. Okay, let's yeah. get to the meal box later. Yeah, but, yeah. So this yeah. is a subscription. So is separate from the meal box. We're calling it Clover Club. So yeah, listen this- up
0: everybody. This is yeah, interesting. This, is, I, this sounds awesome.
3: Yeah, so you can subscribe to a restaurant. And then basically the way this works is you say, look, I'm gonna eat with you three times a week or four times a week for the next month. And then in turn, that's, that's like, you know, a customer's part of the bargain. And then Clover's part of the bargain is, we'll cut 30% off the price of your meals and, uh, and you get to order when you want.
0: So it's basically a commitment. Yep. Like I, I promised eat six meals at your restaurant for yep. a 30% discount or whatever yep. it is. So if you're a regular, it's a no brainer.
3: Yeah. And it's, it's, um and I think the value for us is that we can um, increase the number of visits, you know, and that's how we can afford to give people a discount. And, uh, and it's, and it's really cool. And then on the other side of it, if you're, you know, somebody who's trying to budget your meals, you can end up with a much more affordable um, plan and probably over time your health's going to improve. And I know for a fact, your impact on the environment is going to be phenomenal. And one in the little dashboard, we actually show you how much CO2 you've displaced since you joined the plan. Uh,
1: 2021, we should sign an LOI with a landowner, right? And figure out between LOI and lease signing, how many people in that we can sign up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's
3: that's my, I'm actually even thinking to do an earlier test on it, depends. I, I'm thinking that we may, you know, even next week announce some. Downtown Crossing, a restaurant there that we call DTX and the one at 160 Federal that's near South Station, those two aren't open yet. And we're trying to figure out the timing we, we touched on that earlier, when to open those. I think it might be fun just to sort of have a, you know, target number. Once we get to this many meal plans, we're gonna open the restaurant um, and let people in the neighborhood you know, vote for it that way. And basically just put a you know, in the same way that you put a deposit on a Tesla you want to you want in the future, we'd have people putting a little, you know, a little deposit saying yes, they, you know, raise their hand. I want to sign up for the meal plan. And the threshold there isn't that high. Like we
0: It's Kickstarter for restaurants, basically.
3: Yeah. It's it's something like that. And the economics on it really work out well. So that's that might become our newer version of uh the food truck. You know, we may have people digitally raising their hand, saying, I want you in my neighborhood. You know, I want you nearby. And once we get to a critical mass, uh, that justifies us opening something.
1: Well, just to be clear, it's really different than Kickstarter in one, well, in many ways, but in one key way. Kickstarter one time. Boom. I decided to fund it. This for a restaurant, right? You know, yeah, it's ongoing. After week, yeah. after week. And just based on the way in which Clover retains its customers, I being one of them, I had five meals at Clover every week up before the pandemic oftentimes more between you know breakfast and lunch that's an amazing thing for a restaurant to know that they have that cash flow coming in
3: yeah it's it, it really changed our business a lot um so it's it's a very exciting thing and and it gives us a chance to um you know it's always been important to us to have really good relationships with our customers. If you came into a Clover pre pandemic, of course, but if you came to a Clover two or three times in a week, say you were brand new on Monday, but you came back on Wednesday and you came back on Thursday, there's probably like an 80% chance by Thursday, the person taking your order is going to recognize you by name. I mean, you know, we work really hard to be good at them. We're phenomenal at it. Um, I think we're looking forward now and thinking, how are those connections formed and what do those look like? And a cool thing about the subscription program is we can get you know when you get to that deeper commitment with somebody we can afford to give them gifts we can afford to create content for them right we can afford to do a lot of things that we may not otherwise be able to
0: personalized experience
3: yeah the yeah. the first uh the first 40 people who signed up for this so we we opened it up quietly and we were just curious who would find it and we we worked with a local knife maker a, a couple of years ago to build a knife like to our clover specifications it's really beautiful it's like it's a very beautiful chef's knife and we decided to give one of these custom knives to each of those first 40 people, and then we invited them to do like a little Zoom knife skills class, um, which is really fun. So I'm I'm very excited about you know how some of these things may uh, unfold, and um, you know it's it's in a way they're mostly COVID's a terrible thing, <laughs> you know for Clover and Clover and others, but. I think it is pushing us all to test the boundaries of you know, our business and, and come up with new ideas. And public, the, interacting with the public has always been a big thing for you
0: guys. Getting feedback has always been a, if everybody has this dashboard, you have that direct link with people to give feedback in real time on their experiences, on the meals they're having, on dishes they like. I assume all that's gonna happen.
3: Yes, yeah, on each part of it is you can tell us what you thought of things. We have a little member news that flows down and you can look and see the different things that are going on. Um, And and as you get into that, we can push notifications to you about some favorite item you loved. You know, we know you loved it because you bought it five times last year in two weeks and we can let you know when that's coming back on the menu. Um, So so awesome. (laughs) Yeah, Drew, I
1: can't even tell you how many times in the last 10 years that there's been some some something that a restaurant has done that's been big news and been regarded as novel and exciting and progressive and innovative. And the majority of those things, Air has been thinking about them for like two years prior. I mean, really no exception. I I thought about that immediately when I heard about Panera's coffee subscription. Right? Like, so... I think we're hearing about right now, we're talking about the future of the restaurant business, right? All of these things. And I think everyone's getting an inside look, which I can say I personally and Graffito has benefited from this relationship with Clover because um, these are the things that Ari's thinking about with his team. And they're all really exciting. Awesome. Hey, were these meal
0: boxes? Let's get into the meal boxes. You weren't into that.
1: You just transitioned really quickly. (laughs)
0: I was very into what you just said, but, <laughs> but you have your own agenda. My, my, my trainer, you know, just my really want attention about- span is very short, and my memory is even shorter. Well, I here's do, the I want to get into the meal boxes.
3: Jess, Jesse and I both go everywhere when we. I know. I'm just. So, I feel <laughs> like I'm
0: just trying to, you know, keep you guys in in line here. All right, um, let's talk about meal boxes, Drew. Okay, really quick, uh, air. Yeah. Jesse, great point. Yeah. Let's move on. Thank you. <laughs> that, that's all I want. A little <laughs> acknowledgement. <laughs> You started doing the meal boxes. Was that a plan before COVID?
3: Yeah, it was not. I mean the the the, subs- the meal subscriptions in the restaurants, we're calling Clover Club, that's something we've been working on for about two years. Okay. The the meal boxes uh, really were not on the radar and they um you know, they, they sprung forth in sort of an organic way. I mean when COVID hit we shut everything down very, very quickly. Um, and I just, I put it all in pause. I didn't want to have employees coming into work, not knowing how this whole thing was working. I didn't want to have customers coming in, not knowing how, you know, whether someone would get infected. So we just hit a pause and everything, furloughed everybody, including myself. When we did that, uh, we had all this food on hand. You know, we we had all the food for the next day. <laughs> um, I'm Clover works like on a very tight cycle, but we still had all the food for the next day and we weren't gonna open the next day. So we sent a note out to our customers just saying, hey, we're gonna distribute these boxes. gonna be like a grab box, 50 bucks. Come by, sign up for it, come by, and we'll just give you a bunch of these things. Let me guess how that went. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that was, it was, it was, uh, gone, right? Some of my employees are still like have PTSD from that <laughs> because I told them, yeah, hey, we'll probably have 200 people interested in, we didn't put a cap on sign up. So we had 800 people sign up within like four hours, no joke. And so by the time we realized that was happening, it was a little too late so we we're scrambling to get everybody happy but we didn't have enough to make everybody happy and, and nobody had figured out how all this would work so it was a big mess but uh, a happy mess but a big mess and so we we cleared out everything and it was a and, and that became the prototype for what we're doing in a way because we were giving people a weird combination of things like some of it was like straight up grocery like i would have mushrooms we just give you some mushrooms i would have You know, I would have some lettuce. We'd give you some lettuce. And other stuff was like um, things we prepared. I had some beautiful hummus that was all finished and ready to go. I had, you know, some pita we had baked. Um, I had some ingredients you could use to make your own sandwich. And so it was this combination of grocery plus, like, mostly ready to go, which is just what it looks like in a restaurant, right? Like, restaurants can make you a beautiful meal in under 10 minutes because someone's already done all the hard work
0: yeah all the prep happened yeah. all day there's like
3: assembly at the last minute but there um was all prep that it happened
0: so that leads to the meal kit so that's what our yeah. meal kits became it's yeah.
3: like they are we we just became a little more organized about it and we said what if we define some meals we do all the prep for you so you still have to do some assembly like it's a little different than um you know it's not like that daily harvest it's not like the blue apron it's something in between it's well more you're
0: not making a dish you're assembling Components that
3: are already made. Exactly. But you may have to heat something. Yeah. You may have to cut a a slice a piece of bread, you know? So there's something we're asking you to do, but um, the result I think is really awesome, especially the way uh, I think in particular, people that really like food, can really enjoy it because you can tweak stuff.
0: Well, not just people like food, but people that like your food because it's the way you're doing it. It's going to be very close to what they would get in the restaurant versus one of these other things where it's like, well, here are the ingredients and here's a 20 list instruction manual. It it could taste different for everybody.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. It's harder to fail. Like these things taste good already and you can mess them them up and it still tastes great. You can mix it around. They still taste great. And um, but it's also, it's flexible in that way. We give you like, we prescribe three meals we think you should make, but these components are awesome. Like there might be a, you know, we may have given you for example, um, a uh, impossible meatball sandwich to make and it's all ready You warm it up and cut the bread and put it in. And alongside that, you may have, we may have like a beautiful roasted cauliflower pesto salad. Oh,
0: Jesse, why aren't we asking guests to bring some samples in when we ask people to come in here? What are we thinking? You're the host. You send out all the emails. What are you thinking? I'm thinking come that we on, need to start dude. doing this. seriously. Hey, let's uh, see that knife that you guys had yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> sent out. Sounds really nice. Jesse, have you done any of these blue apron things? No, but it's, uh, yes. And you know, the other thing this reminded
1: me of, Aaron and I have never spoke about this. The first time I met Josh, H- Josh Hicks, who's one of the founders, HIX, of Plated, he was an HBS grad. It was while he was at HBS. My first meeting with Josh Hicks was at Clover in Harvard Square, oh. not the current one, the original uh-huh. one. And Josh and his partner sold Plated to Kroger for an outrageous amount of money recently. But it, the reason I bring it up is it frames in my head how fast the industry has moved in the last five years. When Clover opened its first brick and mortar, blue apron plated, et cetera, did not even exist. Didn't even exist. So it's, it's amazing to think about how much has happened in the last 10 years. And as Eric was talking, it's also amazing to think about how much has happened in the last six months. Yeah. Right. Like these pivots are going to be, a lot of them are going to stay and they're going to be
0: part of the, food and beverage scene for the next 10 years a lot of pivots like mar- the markets and things like that probably don't have staying power but this idea that it, it, there's no reason to ever stop doing these mail kits as long as there's popular you know
3: yeah i mean i think it might be something sustainable yeah. we'll have to see it's it's been a lot of fun is it profitable um. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um. I mean, we get to decide the price, so we pick a price where we're yeah, not losing money. True. True. Uh, nobody can afford to lose more true. money right but now. The, but
0: there are a lot of companies out there just doing things just yeah. to kind of. Yeah. No. Keep I think.
3: Look. I mean, we're we're trying to build this as something that it can help us get through this period. So we're not like a. You know, we're not a a, a Silicon Valley funded food startup that's just, you know, dumping money into something that doesn't work. Um, We have to make sure it works each step.
0: I'm glad you brought that up. In terms of your investors, I know you have them. What are your conversations been like with them? How have they handled how how Clover has dealt with the pandemic and the future plans?
3: Yeah, so um, we're lucky in a way that we haven't had to, um, we haven't had to ask for any more money yet. So that's really you know that's, that's where the big, rubber yeah. hits the road right? yeah i mean we'll we'll really know how they all feel when i uh you know when I say we need to raise some money um but uh I would say you know we've had investor updates and everything and um obviously you know people have been i think broadly supportive and and uh positive um but uh it's there's just so many unknowns for everybody right now um I think it's you know it's hard for anybody to take any like strong stance because nobody really knows what's ahead.
0: I think that's the important of aligning
3: principles and values with your investors
0: because there's that understanding. They trust you. It sounds like you haven't had any
3: issues or people freaking out. No, no, we haven't had anything like that. The
0: alignment Um, of principles and values.
1: I think Clover also has that with their customers. And I think that's why coming out of this, Clover's gonna endure and Clover's gonna be okay. And you guys have pivoted. I feel like as a Clover customer and talking to many folks who are Clover
0: customers, they're kind of in it, it with you. It's more than that because a lot of customers are in line with the businesses they are following and they support. The difference is there's, there's actually a statement of purpose behind Clover and what they're trying to do. Yeah, and I would say, Eric, I'm curious to hear what you think about this. For those in the Boston area,
1: I think there's a recognition that there's a lot of trust between Clover and its customers. I know that's something you care deeply about. And I think coming out of this, that trust, I'm always willing to try things at Clover, and I think there are others um, that I may not be willing to do at another restaurant, whether it's ordering a new way or trying something new, because I fundamentally trust Clover. And I think that's also been part of... um, one of the things that's in, that's a product of the way in which you communicate with customers. So there, there's just so much there. I mean, your website's not, even your website is non-traditional. Yeah. I mean, your website essentially from day
0: one has been- Old school blog yes, looking, yeah. And it's
1: remained that way. And it's, yeah. it's just, it's really powerful stuff.
0: And by the way, when you're in Clover, do you feel like you're a part of this experiment to figure out what's working and what's not? Because when I walk into Clover and I know that things change so much, I feel like every time I order something, I'm like a part of deciding what might stay on the menu or what might not stay on the menu. Yeah, totally, I love it. And you know, the way in which Clover's train their staff
1: is you actually have the conversation when you're ordering with somebody, they explain to you, they ask you, they tell you why it's new, they tell you what they're, it's, um, it's where we're all headed. You guys have been there since day one and it's, it's remarkable. So yeah, I like Clover. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I can't help myself. It's just uh, it's well, a. It's special. Place. T- t- Jesse
3: and I, I know each other because he was a, a, he was a customer of the very first food truck at MIT. So, that's that's how we originally met.
0: I remember. Yeah. You knew it was special even back then. For sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This has been awesome. I kind of want to have you back again because I feel like we barely
3: scratched the surface, but thanks for coming. in. Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, fun to be here. Always fun to talk.
0: Thank you for listening to the Graffito Podcast. For more information about the podcast, our hosts, and guests, please visit graffito.com and click on the podcast tab at the top of the page. Do you have a question for our team? Email podcast at graffito.com and maybe we'll answer on one of our future episodes.